a dramatic turning point in the dispute over the German throne. From 1197, the Werf dynasty fought against the Hohenstaufen dynasty in the struggle for the rule of the empire, with Otto IV on the Werf side and Philip of Swabia on the Hohenstaufen side. Cologne sided with the Welfs around the year 1200. However, a worsening military situation and probably also personal reasons led to the city ruler of Cologne, Archbishop Adolf of Altena, switching sides in 1205 and he joined the Hohenstaufen party. The irony was that it had been the Archbishop of Cologne who had been instrumental in bringing Otto IV into play since 1197, thus fueling the conflict. However, he had now changed sides. But there was a problem. The city lord had changed sides, yes, but not his city and the local subjects themselves. Cologne, as a city, remained on Otto's side, and so the German throne controversy, the dispute, entered a new bloody round for Cologne in 1205. More about this directly after the intro. And with that, welcome back to the History of Cologne, a podcast about the history of the city of Cologne that is over 2,000 years old. But until it became what it is today, this old city on the Rhine has endured a colorful and rich past, hence it can therefore be seen as a kind of European microcosm. In this podcast you can listen as the city grows, from the Romans up until our present time. The Archbishop of Cologne, Adolf of Altena, had therefore changed sides. The city of Cologne, however, with its wealthy citizenry at its head, had not. Parts of the Cologne church had an even had even elected a new archbishop in Bruno of Sein. Naturally, Adolf of Altena was not prepared to step down from the bishopcy, but who was the rightful archbishop of Cologne now? Adolf or Bruno? Cologne had now de facto two crawling archbishops. As if two crawling kings were not enough. This only meant one thing. The conflict would become even more chaotic and confusing. The response from Otto IV's few supporters followed immediately. King John Lackland of England granted even more extensive trading rights to the Cologne merchants in his realm, but with the proviso that this would only apply if Cologne remained loyal to its kinsmen. In other words, in the camp of the Welfs. The Pope, also a partisan of Otto IV, did not want a new Hohenstaufen emperor who threatened him territorially in Italy from all sides and banned Archbishop Adolf of Altena from the church as threatened before. In the summer of 1205, Pope Innocent III declared him even deposed as Archbishop of Cologne. This shows that the power of the Pope, as we know it up until today, had now prevailed Whereas in Charlemagne's time, or well into the 12th century, the emperors and kings of the empire had been free to appoint bishops, and the pope was now the deciding factor. However, whether this was actually the case in real politics, in real political terms, was another question, as we shall see in a moment. Large parts of the Cologne church probably had no problem with the deposition of their still active and lively leader. After all, as already mentioned, a new archbishop, Bruno of Sein, was elected by the Cologne clergy in July 1205. Wouldn't that have settled the matter? Bruno is the new leader, Adolf no longer, being deposed by the Pope. 
Of course, it was complicated again. As a nobleman from the region and related to the powerful dynasty of Berg, Adolf was well-connected, well-known and well-connected after all, in addition to his previous 12 years as Archbishop of Cologne. Adolf's secular power as Prince of the Realm was thus hardly restricted for the time being, on the contrary. In the summer of 1205, the deposed Archbishop of Cologne managed to gather an army to march against Cologne with the help of his new king, Philip of Swabia, and he was followed by virtually the entire Lower Rhine nobility who remained loyal to Adolf of Altena. The situation had already become very threatening for Cologne. The directly neighboring town of Deutz on the other side of the Rhine had already been occupied by troops of the Counts of Berg, after all it was not officially part of Cologne at the time. Allies and above all relatives of the deposed archbishop were in support of that attack. Berg archers fired on Cologne's Rhine ships from the former Rhone fort Deutz. A severe blow to Cologne's trade, the city's lifeline, the free trade on the Rhine. The Cologne merchants in the city tried to counter this by anchoring their own ships in the middle of the river and manning them with their armed servants and clients. These were now also to fire back towards Deutz and create a kind of security corridor in the river between the city and the anchored ships, to make at least half of the Rhine navigable. Other armed units from Cologne are said to have attacked and set fire to villages and towns around Deutz in order to cut off supplies to Deutz for the troops of the Count of Berg. The region around Cologne had already suffered enough from the long years of military conflict. We will come back to the effects of this at the end. If that had not been enough, suffering for the people in the region and around Cologne, the royal army of Philip of Swabia and the deposed Archbishop of Cologne were now marching towards the city. The army camped in today's Raderberg, south of the walled city, and waited for the assault on Cologne. Philip of Swabia had already tried to conquer Cologne several times since 1198 and had failed each time. Now, however, the immediate surroundings of Cologne were also on the side of the Hohenstaufen ruler, together with Archbishop Adolf of Altena, who had been deposed but was still secularly powerful. This made the situation very precarious for the people of Cologne. The sources are divided on what exactly happened in the fall of 1205. There are contradictory versions in the Royal Chronicle already discussed. Some speak of bloody battles in which the citizens of Cologne fended off the attacks of the Hohenstaufen army against the mighty city wall together with Otto IV. Another version reports that both parties waited it out. Be that as it may, after five days a result was reached that we can expect to see again and again until 1794. Because, remember, medieval armies were simply not able to overcome a large city wall like Cologne's so quickly. After five days the Hohenstaufen army withdrew to the north and tore a swath of devastation through the country. The conflict ended in another draw in this round. Otto IV of the Welf dynasty had not lost, but he could no longer win either. The fact that he was still alive was a success, yes, but he was unable to capitalize on it. Only the thick walls where he was hiding of Cologne protected him from defeat at that moment. 
With this situation, it was only a matter of time before the Hohenstaufen side would finally triumph. And so, it came to pass that disillusionment also spread in Cologne. What good did it do to the city to be loyal and honorable, even if the Pope gave it to you in writing? Once again, at the end of 1205, the Pope wrote an extremely flattering letter to Cologne, praising the people of Cologne for their loyalty to Otto IV, who was on the losing side. But the Pope was safe in distant Rome. Cologne, in turn, was now in a sea of enemies. This change of heart was also reinforced among the wealthy citizens of Cologne. It was better to negotiate now when a royal army had just been forced to withdraw from the city than to hold out any longer and then find oneself in an even more awkward situation with little or no room for negotiation. So, guys, there was again the Cologne characteristic of always being flexible in loyalty to power and the powerful but let's be honest, this time it was also, it, it, I mean, it was time to reconsider the city's commitment to Otto IV from the Wealth Dynasty. For events come fast. On July 27th, 1206, Otto IV's army was defeated by Philip of Swabia. The recently newly elected and wealth-minded Archbishop Bruno of Sion was captured by the Hohenstaufen ruler Philip of Swabia. Otto then fled to his original territory in Brunswick, where he was largely safe, the last line of defense he had left, so to speak, and he awaited his fate. On the Lower Rhine, however, the last few remaining wealth bastions fell. As a result, Cologne was once again encircled in 1206, and this time, however, it was besieged in order to wear the city down and starve it out. But let's keep this new siege short and get straight to the result. After what felt like the hundredth time of a siege of the city, the city of Cologne realized that it couldn't go on like this. After all, there was nothing left of it. Otto IV was hiding far away in Brunswick. The Rhineland, indeed almost the entire empire, fought against Otto IV, and Cologne's trade routes had long since ceased to be navigable as they led through enemy territory. The area around Cologne was badly affected by besieging or passing armies. If not now, then when? Could things get even worse? So, one year after the city leader did this, the city itself followed its ruler. Cologne changed sides on November 11th, 12 of 6. From today's perspective, this is an interesting date for Cologne because it's the start of carnival season. However, the people of Cologne had acted wisely towards Philip of Swabia because they had not capitulated, but had made a good deal with him. They had previously sent the Duke of Brabant, who had already switched sides with Archbishop Adolf of Altena a year earlier, to the Hohenstaufen ruler as a mediator, asking him, hey, dude, is it okay if we join your team? And it seems to have worked. There was no punishment for Cologne from Philip of Swabia. He was, so the Hohenstaufen king was also more interested in not punishing Cologne too harshly because the main thing was that this stubborn city, the biggest city of the empire, this big fortress after all, did not resist him any further in the Rhineland. 
It was therefore a settlement of the dispute, and as I said, not a capitulation. Both sides remained safe their faces. Philip's only condition, all citizens of Cologne were to swear an oath of allegiance to him, seemingly wary after all the years of war in the Rhineland Cologne's Cologne's citizens immediately took this oath of allegiance, even long before the deadline set by the king himself had passed, and the blockade of all routes to Cologne, including the Rhine, was lifted immediately. The following points were agreed at this dispute settlement between Cologne and Philip of Swabia, some of which were considerable. For example, the poor deposed Archbishop Adolf of Altena was to be reinstated as Archbishop through the intercession of the city of Cologne with Pope Innocent III. So Cologne should go to the Pope and ask him, Hey, Mr. Pope, please put Adolf of Altena back into office. But if this did not succeed, because after all, it was the Pope's decision and the city of Cologne had no final word in this, no one should blame the people for Cologne, uh, the people of Cologne for it, if they were unable to convince the Pope. Above all, the local nobility, allied with Adolf, should not be angry and do raids against the city or something like that. However, the king, Philip of Swabia, also made concessions to Cologne. All the rights and privileges that the city had previously received remained in force and were confirmed once again by Philip. And this time, the citizens of Cologne were addressed directly, and not previously via the Archbishop of Cologne. Yet, another setback for the Archbishop in preserving his rights as Supreme Lord of Cologne, in a time when the question was in general, who is our Archbishop at that time right now? Is it Bruno or is it Adolf? Cologne was now a city in which its rich and politically influential inhabitants could correspond directly with the Pope and emperor and king. A really interesting development coming from that conflict because a, an archbishop like Anno would have never allowed that. In the long years of conflict, the Rhineland had seen much devastation and destruction from each side of the conflict. It was agreed, furthermore, that neither side could demand reparations from the other. Furthermore, Cologne was allowed to continue to extend its city wall, which had been underway since 1180. There is also no mention here of the archbishop having a say in this. The right of the citizens of Cologne to fortify the city remained unaffected by the archbishop's influence. And the Hohenstaufen-minded citizens who had been thrown out of the city in 1198 were to be allowed back into Cologne and compensated. Philip left it up to the citizens of Cologne to decide exactly how this was to be done and above all, who was to be affected. And here too, the Hohenstaufen king granted the city and its inhabitants a great deal of autonomy. Once again, there's no mention of the archbishop as the decision-maker in this agreement. I don't know about you, but if you consider how hopeless the military situation was for Cologne from 1205 onwards, then this settlement of 1206-07 really is the best possible deal that could have been struck. But don't be put off. Cologne's inhabitants were certainly, in their hearts, still pro-Welsh, because they particularly valued trade with England. However, the political reality in 1207 was very, very different. However, there was still a deep rift within the Cologne clergy as to whom they should remain loyal to. 
to the Hohenstaufenwohler Philip and the deposed Archbishop of Cologne, Adolf of Altona, or to the Pope Otto IV, hiding in Brunswick, and the new Archbishop of Cologne, Bruno of Sein. At a time when monasteries, convents, churches, and spiritual institutions had great possessions and wealth and were endowed with many political rights, this was politically explosive. The rift also went right through the heart of the city of Cologne, through the individual parishes. Many still sympathized with the imprisoned Bruno of Sein. After all, the poor fellow had been prisoner of Philip of Swabia since the lost battle a year before. But Adolf of Altena was still considered deposed by the Pope. So you have two archbishops of Cologne, neither powerful enough because of the other, and having a lack of uh, um, authority. That's the word I was looking for. So in addition to the German throne dispute, we also have a schism in the Archbishopric of Cologne. How wonderful. Stupid for the salvation of all the people in the city and in the area of the Archbishopric. In terms of real power politics. Hmm. Not so bad for the up-and-coming economic bourgeoisie, if you want to say it like that, consisting of long-distance traders, um, jurors and ministerials. Because if it was unclear which of the two opponents was really the lord of the city, then there was no longer a clear point of contact at the political top of the city. So the citizens, the wealthy citizens of Cologne, stepped into this power vacuum. This was demonstrated by the fact that as I already pointed out, they made treaties directly with kings and the Pope. Once again, Cologne's inhabitants took a small step towards more self-government and emancipation from the city ruler, the Archbishop of Cologne. So, everything was actually going well now. In spring 1208, there were signs that Pope Innocent III and Philip of Swabia, big enemies the years earlier, were coming closer together, coming to an, under, understand, uh, to an agreement, to an understanding. The Pope had already lifted the church ban on the Hohenstaufen ruler a year earlier. It was also clear in Rome that Otto IV no longer had any hope of taking the throne as a result, the new Archbishop of Cologne, Bruno of Sein, was released from Stauffer custody and traveled to Rome. His predecessor, Adolf of Altena, who still considered himself the rightful Archbishop of the city and was no longer banned by the Pope as well, was also there. Both now appeared before the Pope and both insisted on being officially recognized as the official Archbishop of Cologne. But even though Bruno of Sein was a pro-wealth archbishop, the Pope remained firm on this issue. Innocent III confirmed that his decision to depose Adolf of Altena in 1205 was unavoidable. Bruno of Sein was the rightful archbishop of Cologne because he had then been being elected by the clergy of Cologne. So, one departure triumphantly, the other sad and disappointed. At the same time, between April 21st and April 30th, in 1208, King Philip of Swabia visited Cologne at Easter. 
The fact that he had besieged the city several times and devastated the surrounding countryside for several years probably did not dampen the city's joy that in this uh, few days, in these few days. The Hohenstaufen ruler was welcomed to the city with great uh, fanfare, festivities and joy. The inhabitants cheered the entering king in the streets. All the bells in the city rang out, choir sang hymns of praise and everything was cleaned up. As a gift, the Hohenstaufen king brought with him a document that once again confirmed the rights and privileges of the citizens of Cologne. One of the best points, which the Richardseche Brotherhood certainly welcomed with joy, especially the long-distance traders in it, was that the Rhine toll at Kaiserswerth, which Philip's father, Emperor Barbarossa, had once imposed as a hostile measure against Cologne in the north of the city, was abolished. The trade route to the North Sea and England was now free again of this tax. And what about the wealth ruler? Of course, Otto IV still existed de facto, but he was hiding in his Saxon possessions around Brunswick. So, was this where the German throne dispute ended in 1208, Philip as the victor and Otto IV living his last days, captured, I mean, trapped in Brunswick? It certainly looked that way. But if you've been counting up since the first podcast episode on this topic, you'll quickly realize that the 20 years are far from over in 1208, as the conflict only started in 1197. Well, it happened two months after Philip Boswabi had spent Easter in Cologne. His wealth rival Otto IV was de facto, as I said, defeated in the German throne dispute. But as long as he still sat free in his residence in Brunswick, saying, I am still the king, I am still the king, he was an unpleasant reminder for Philip of how hard he had to fight for the crown at times and above all for how long. And, as I said, Otto IV had not, still not conceded his defeat, nor was he thinking of taking off the crown he had been given there were still two kings after all. And so it was clear that Philip, even though he was basically the victor in this conflict after all, he wanted to settle this once and for all. So Otto IV was to be forced by force to relinquish his title. It was that in the summer of 1208, the Hohenstaufen ruler Philip gathered a huge army ready to march to Brunswick to defeat Otto IV once and for all the chances were better than ever before. But before Philip went to war, the king sought some distraction, some fun, and he hoped to find this at his niece's wedding in Bamberg. He attended the wedding there at, on June 21st. Afterwards, he retired to his private chambers in the afternoon to relax from the wedding festivities. Now, researchers have always debated what happened next and for what motive, just as the contemporary witnesses did. What happened? Well, here it comes again. The nobility's characteristic for giving themselves similar names all the time. So now we have here an Otto the Eighth, but he has nothing to do with the wealth dynasty. He's Otto the Eighth. Count Palatine of Bavaria from the house, the dynasty of Wittelsberg. And this Otto VIII, 
Count of Bavaria, forced his way into the king's chambers under the false pretense of an audience. And when he got the audience and was alone with the king in, in his chamber, he stabbed the unsuspecting king in the neck with his sword. Yeah, Philip sank to the ground, fatally wounded, and he was dead, <laughs> obviously. The Bavarian Count Palatine naturally fled the scene immediately. So, you might say, totally natural thing, it's the Dark Middle Ages, the cliche of the brutal Middle Ages. And um, no, what happened on this day in 1208 was something completely out of the ordinary that happened to Philip of Swabia. This really was the first murder of an acting ruler in the empire since the Merovingian period, and that period had already ended in the 8th century. So this was the first murder of an acting ruler for several centuries. A king was a ruler anointed by the church, chosen by God to rule. Remember how um, godlike the Etonian dynasty was for the people and their, and their subjects. To kill a king so treacherously was of course an unparalleled sacrilege at that time. So why did someone kill the king just like that, like Otto VIII of the House of Wittelsbach did? Was this the act of an individual who had a personal desire for revenge? Because Philip once promised his daughter to the Bavarian Count Palatine Otto VIII, but then broke off the engagement for another better, better political match. Or was there a conspiracy of several princes behind it? Who knows? We should not be interested in that at all because we're interested in the history of Cologne. If you want to deep into that further, you can imagine what I'm going to say. Listen to the History of the Germans podcast by Dirk. I can really recommend you this episode. But Philip of Swabia was now dead. The man who had fought for the crown for more than 10 years, ultimately, successfully, well, didn't matter now, he was dead. The victim of an insidious murder. Philip's murderer, Otto VIII from the House of Wittelsbach, outlived his victim by less than a year. In March 1209, the outlawed man was caught and immediately beheaded. However, his noble family, where he came from, survived. As rulers of parts of Bavaria, they ruled for several centuries from 1180, later as dukes, then as electors, and from 1806 even as the king of Bavaria. Over a million tourists visit Neuschwanstein Castle every year, which was built by the Wittelsbach King Ludwig II of Bavaria in the 19th century. And that's not all. Numerous rulers of other regions and countries emerged from this dynasty and they were not entirely unimportant for Cologne later either. The Wittelsbach dynasty provided the Archbishop of Cologne for almost 200 years in the 16th and 18th century. But we are far from being near to that period yet. But it was not until 1918, which the end of the monarchy in Germany was, that the rule of the Wittelsbach family in Bavaria came to an end. However, the Wittelsbach dynasty is still alive and kicking it today. Franz Bonaventura Adalbert Maria, Duke of Bavaria, has been the head of the Wittelsbach dynasty since 1996. 
back to the Middle Ages, to the year 1208. The death of the Hohenstaufen ruler Philip of Swabia naturally mixed everything up again. The people of Cologne had only sided with Philip of Swabia for pragmatic political reasons. Many in Cologne, however, will have rumored that the murder of Philip could have been a judgment of God. But now I want to do something that you may not have expected after all, after three long episodes about this topic. I'm going to abbreviate what follows here. After all, the events of the German throne dispute from 1208 onwards are very different for those of us here who are interested in the history of Cologne. Until 1208, right, Cologne was one of the major players in this conflict. We have shed so much light on this empire-wide and in some cases European conflict because the citizens of Cologne had understood how to skillfully expand their own power and self-government in the power vacuum created by the conflict between two kings and later on two archbishops. This is important to understand the further development of the city's history. Once again, a friendly reference to the charters, the documents that the city conclude directly as an equal partner with kings and the Pope. Something that no German city had ever achieved before in that time. The archbishop as the actual lord of the city had been bypassed. It was only thanks to Cologne that Otto IV had been able to survive so long in the battle against the Hohenstaufen dynasty. Even if Cologne changed sides in the end, the fact that he, Otto IV, was still alive in 1208 and had even outlived his adversary Philip of Swabia was largely thanks to Cologne. Cologne thus played a decisive role in this shaping European history at that time. However, this second phase from 1208 onwards is different for Cologne. Here the city no longer acted as the main participant. It got what it wanted, free passage, free ways to the North Sea and England. But only in a passive role, it's now acting. As this is still the podcast about Cologne, that is the reason why I want to abbreviate here. So let's do this, abbreviate. The years of preservance now have paid off for Otto IV. His adversary is dead. And he was finally elected as the rightful king in Frankfurt in November by everyone. This was followed in 1209 by the imperial coronation by Pope Innocent III in Rome. But things would go downhill from, for him from there, but that's another topic. The same applied to one of the main perpetrators of the dispute over the throne, Adolf of Altena, Cologne's deposed archbishop had hoped that the death, the early death of Bruno of Sein in the same year, November 1208, would make him Archbishop of Cologne again, because there were two Archbishops of Cologne fighting for that job. Now he was the only one left. But, of course, let's put it that way, it was very unfortunate for him that his ally and advocate, Philip of Swaby, had already died beforehand. And why should now the new, I mean, he's not the new king, but he's not the only king and the new king, why should Otto IV now work to restore the man to the position of one of the most powerful princes in the empire, who had initially supported him, yes, and even crowned him, yes, but then ultimately betrayed him? The Cologne clergy probably thought so too, and for the second time in a row since Adolf's deposition, the Cologne Church elected a completely different archbishop who was then confirmed by the Pope and Emperor. 
But what would Cologne's history be if it wasn't complicated? Because it's getting complicated. Because this new archbishop was now also deposed by the Pope in 1212. Adolf was indeed then once again head of the Archbishopric of Cologne for four years between 1212 and 1216, but only on a temporary basis, as a temporary solution. Crazy, I know, but not at all complicated. Adolf tried to remain interim Archbishop for as long as possible, but in 1216 the pressure was too great for him. The Cologne clergy prevailed with the demand to finally elect a new archbishop. Adolf of Altena was only to remain in office until a replacement was found, and a replacement was found. In 1216, the Cologne church elected Engelbert of Berg as the new chief shepherd of Cologne, a man who deserves his very own episode, because he had a lot going on for him. Coming from a dynasty of Berg, he brought quite a lot of worldly, secular power with him, but as I said, another episode for another time. Adolf of Altenau, incidentally, was related to the new Archbishop Engelbert, again gave in. He accepted a pension allocated to him by his relative Engelbert and mostly lived away from the public eye. And on April 15, 1220, Adolf of Altena died in Neuss, a city north of Cologne. Otto IV's years as a sole king and then emperor were short-lived, as already mentioned. He soon fell out of favor with the Pope when he harbored ambitions for Sicily and even conquered parts of the King of Sicily. And guys, how ironic is that, since it was this fear by the Pope that the Hohenstaufen like Philip of Swabia would rule both the empire, which extended as far as northern Italy, and also Sicily. And thus the papal states of the Pope would be encircled on all sides. This had once been the reason why the Pope had supported Otto IV. Now, however, a wealth also ensured that this encirclement was imminent. As you can imagine, Otto earned himself a church ban and then even excommunication from Innocent III. And not only that, he called on the magnates of the empire to elect a new emperor. The rifts between the Welfs and the Hohenstaufen dynasty opened up again <sighs> and the dispute over the throne entered the next round. We better take a break here. My head is spinning and you know what? This was of course another episode full of stories about rulers such as kings and archbishops. But the long conflict had been raging since 1197 and the acts of war had a devastating effect on ordinary and normal people. In other words, on the overwhelming majority of the population, especially in the Rhineland, which was one of the main theaters of fighting in this conflict. And yes, the city of Cologne could never be conquered by Philip of Swabia, let alone plundered and destroyed, that is true, but the devastation and destruction in the immediate vicinity of Cologne, just outside the city walls and in the Rhineland, had of course taken place over and over again, not only by Philip of Swabia, but also by the fighters of Otto IV, and even, you wouldn't believe it, by the archbishop's troops 
also. Ordinary people were hit hard in those years, and many in the city also suffered from the fact that their fields and workplaces outside the city were repeatedly devastated. In times of need, people increasingly turned to their faith. But what should one believe in when the archbishop and large parts of the Cologne church were themselves involved in the conflict? In the eyes of many people at the time, the nobility and the high clergy were no longer moral authorities that could be trusted. Those who wanted to find solace in religion sometimes looked for new paths to happiness at this time. Something strange and unprecedented for us nowadays. And strange things were indeed happening in Cologne in the spring of 1212. A child. A boy called Nicholas promised the children nothing less than the reconquest of Jerusalem, yeah, Jerusalem in the Holy Land, from the Muslims. But not by force, and not with warriors and knights, but with children. Thousands, if not ten thousands of children, are said to have followed Nicholas. They wanted to win back the Holy Land by singing and praying without any violence or bloodshed. What the Crusaders and Popes had failed to achieve in several attempts with violence was now to be brought about by the purest and most innocent people, precisely Nicholas and his crowd of thousands of children. For did not Jesus himself once said, Let the children come to me, and do not forbid them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. I wonder if what happened in 1212 is really true. Guys, this is going to be one of the episodes I've been looking forward for a long time. We'll take a look at it in the next episode, the Children's Crusade of 1212 in Cologne. In the end, as always, I have to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you to my patrons who always support me diligently and long term with this project. Thank you very, very much. Thanks go out also to the ones who threw in a little tip via PayPal this time. So, thank you, Marco, Christian, Antje, and another Christian. The following served me as a literature in this very complicated conflict, which drove me mad sometimes. The great volume of Cologne city history, in this case Cologne in the High Middle Ages by Hugo Stehkamp and Karl Dietmar, was the basis for these episodes. But the the internet portal Rheinische Geschichte, so Rheinische History, whose articles were all written by experts, was also great help with the individual biographies. Finally, we are at the end of this episode. I'm going to eat something nice, have a little drink. Thanks to everyone who listened. Recommend me to others. Rate this podcast where possible. And up until then, auf Wiedersehen.